Well, I think that doesn't need any explanation. I think we can just pray and move forward. <laughs> I do think it's a good idea to pray, so would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we, we again ask you, um, because we want to hear you speak to us. Lord, it's amazing that you would do that, that you speak to us every time we ask, and yet you do. And especially as we come to a passage that at times can feel very uh, complicated and confusing and, and at times even hard to hear, uh, we ask for your help. Um, your spirit is with us, and we thank you for that. And we pray that he would help us hear, that he would help me to speak, so that together we would be strengthened in the way you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. So if you were here with us last week, maybe you'll remember that there was this kind of majestic vision that was laid out for us in Daniel chapter 7. You can almost imagine it as a painting. There are these four beasts representing four kingdoms with the final kingdom being the most hideous. And, and we didn't touch on it much, but it concluded with this horn that was opposing God's people. And then you might remember we suddenly see this throne room where the Ancient of the Days sits down. The Son of Man comes in and all authority is given to him and this glorious kingdom begins. That was the image, the vision of chapter 7. So even as we begin here in chapter 8, we are... It's, it's, we're told that we're supposed to see this as a connection to that. Uh, right at the very beginning, it says a vision. If you don't have it open, I invite you to have it open because we're going to be just kind of like going through different parts of this passage. It says, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me as the first. So we're, we're connecting the two. This is connecting to that. You're supposed to see them in connection with each other. And here's, I think, how you're supposed to understand it, that, that eight is a cropped version of seven. So if you imagine the whole painting of seven, if we crop out the first two beasts, the first two kingdoms, which is Babylon and Mede, and we also on the other end crop out the Ancient of Days scene, and we crop, crop out the Son of Man, and we just have this smaller part and we zoom in, that's what we have with chapter eight. Which means what we're really focusing on is the darkest part of the vision. We're, we're focusing on a reflection on evil. And, and you can see that this is kind of a, a, a dark passage, even by the way that we get at the very end Daniel's reaction. You know, chapters 1 through 6, Daniel just seems like, you know, steady. But do you notice the very last verse? I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. He can't get out of bed after seeing this vision. He can't eat. He is overwhelmed. It says, then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision. The stuff that we are going to be reflecting on today is so intense that Daniel was sick for a week. That's what we're looking at. Welcome to church. I mean, it's, it's a complicated passage about evil. And, and it might even cause us to ask, so why are we looking at this again? And I think to answer that question, I want to reflect with you on a person by the name of Admiral Stockdale. You might have heard of him before if you've read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. It's, he spends some time talking about Admiral Stockdale. And actually, here's what Jim Collins says about this man. He says, Stockdale was the highest-ranking United States military officer in the, quote, Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. He was tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment from 65 to 73. 
He lived out the war without any prisoner's rights, no set release date, and no certainty as to whether he would even survive to see his family again. And in a conversation with Collins, uh, Stockdale says he was able to keep going and not fall apart only through an unshakable confidence that he would endure and prevail in the end. So Collins then asks him, so you made it through, but who, who didn't make it to the end, who was stuck there with you? And, and he, he replies, oh, that's easy. The optimists. And that confused Collins. That's not the answer he expected. So Stockdale explained, the optimists were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come. And Christmas would go. Then they'd say, well, we're going to be out by Easter. And then Easter would come. And Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. Then after a pause, Stockdale goes on to say, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Let me say that again. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with a discipline to confront the most beautiful, the brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. That's why we have Daniel chapter 8. Daniel is inviting us, God is inviting us to this vision too, to look at reality as honestly and plainly as possible so that we can be prepared for it. And yet, as we'll see in this passage, we also see that there is a confidence expressed that there will be an end, that we will prevail. And, and so that's what I want us to consider this morning, both the brutal facts and also the reason for hope. And so we begin, um, like last week, with, with beasts. In these opening verses, the beasts have changed, but the basic idea is the same. You first start with this sheep, this ram. It says it has two horns, and this, this ram represents the Medes and the Persians, an empire that is able to spread incredibly quickly, incredibly powerfully. It's an impressive empire. It's what comes after Babylon. But then after, actually it's two centuries, but after a period, another beast arises. It's a one-horned goat, kind of almost like a unicorn it looks like. And, and we're told later on in the passage that this goat represents Greece. And historians are quite confident that that single horn represents Alexander the Great. In, in, a, in a moment of fury and rage and revenge upon Persia and Mede, the Greek army goes all across the known world, essentially, conquers the Medes and the Persians. And for a moment, Alexander the Great's empire is the greatest empire that has ever existed. If you've studied ancient history, this is actually not that unfamiliar. This is fairly well-known information. And, and it goes on to say what happens next. Um, it says, then the goat became exceedingly great. This is verse 8. But when he, that is, Alexander the Great, was strong, the great horn was broken and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of the heaven. This also is well known. After Alexander the Great died in his early 30s, to everyone's surprise, Greek, that Greek empire was divided into four smaller kingdoms. 
So we have here four centuries of kind of the, the world's conflicts being described with just these two beasts and, and these details. But they really all are just a, a preparation, a precursor to what comes next. Out of one of them, out of one of those four kingdoms, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Enter Antiochus Epiphanes. You might not be familiar with Antiochus Epiphanes, um, but he becomes, in some ways, one of these central characters in the book of Daniel for the rest of the book. Antiochus Epiphanes was a king of one of those four smaller kingdoms that represented Greece. He was a, I suppose you could say, a colorful character. He was known for doing unpredictable things, like just randomly giving money to people on the street, sometimes appearing in public bathhouses with the commoners. He was a populist, you might say. He was um, also a person of extremely significant ego. So Epiphanes is the name he gave himself, which means God made manifest, which tells you what he thinks of himself. Not everyone agreed, I should point out. There's this one historian who thought he was really clever. He started calling him uh, after his death, so he wasn't that brave. But he started calling him Antiochus Epimenes. Get it? Epimenes. Epimenes means madman. So some people didn't think Antiochus was that great. But he was... Think, think of, a, of Vladimir Putin, and you've got Antiochus. He was clever, he was unpredictable, and he was known for his extreme cruelty. And, and during this time, in the second century, he was intent on expanding his kingdom and also stabilizing it, unifying it, making it all kind of united by an appreciation of Greek culture. He wanted the whole thing to have the same Greek culture together. And that kind of worked, except there was this one annoying territory that he was never able to, to get to follow, this area of Judea that he was overseeing, where some of the Jews, to his surprise, resisted the desire to become Greeks. And so at 167 BC, infamously, Antiochus brings his army, he goes into Jerusalem, thousands, thousands of, of Jewish men and women and children are just brutally slaughtered, and Antiochus goes into the temple of God, and he goes to the altar in the middle of the temple of God, and he brings a pig, which is unclean by Jewish standards, and he sacrifices to Zeus in the middle of God's temple. And then after that, he commands people throughout Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, not to God, but to Zeus, using pigs as well. And those who don't, those who resist, and there will be some who do resist and continue to resist, are tortured and even killed for denying him what he has demanded. He becomes the great villain of the last few centuries before Jesus in Israel. He is, his downfall is celebrated every year when the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. That's, that's who Antiochus Epiphanes is. And, and that's, that's, if you looked at, notice the details of what was being described here, you can now see that at least mostly this is what these verses are talking about. So verse 10, it talks about this horn grew great 
even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground. That is, people is what's being described, the, 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 the people of God. It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given to it together with a regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And then if we were to look also later on when this vision is being interpreted, verse 23, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, in other words, this ruthless master of intrigue is the idea here, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. Do you see, after I've told you the detail, detail of Antiochus, how this is largely talking about Antiochus. It is speaking of this this antichrist-like king who is going to come and is going to destroy worship, destroy God's people, destroy truth. Although I want to say it is, it's mostly speaking of Antiochus. Again, this is a heavenly vision, and a heavenly vision is meant to give us kind of a larger reality on more cosmic things. And, and what's being described here, yes, on one hand, is a historical figure, but we're meant to see something more. That Antiochus is just kind of an expression of something bigger, something darker, something more menacing. So sometimes if you are far away from like a mountain range, it kind of like it's hard to see the details, hard to see all the peaks, all the mountains. You can see like the tallest part, but kind of some of the rest of the mountains kind of aren't as visible. And even sometimes when we get close, say we're driving and there's some like roads that will take us over, it can look like what we're about to approach is all part of the same mountain until either through climbing or driving, we get to the top of the first peak. And we realize that this first mountain was just kind of a sub-mountain, one, one that doesn't actually get us and the, the, the higher peak is still separate from the one that we're on and still in front of us. There's a sense that, that often happens in terms of the way that prophecy works, that, that you see an initial fulfillment that's kind of like that first peak and it's, it anticipates the larger thing that's still before you. So a perfect example of this, we, we talked about this in Advent. You might remember 2 Samuel 7 where, where God appears to, Dave, uh, to Nathan, a vision basically delivered to David, saying to David that you will have a descendant who will be a great king and he will become like a son to me and he will build the temple and he will establish peace. And then what happens next? Solomon. And it feels like Solomon is the fulfillment of this promise. Except when you get to the end of Solomon's life, you realize you're not quite there yet. You've just come kind of like to the top of the first peak and you realize there's still something bigger, something greater that still lies before you for that promise to be completely fulfilled. And I want to suggest that Antiochus Epiphanes is the same way. That on one hand, with Antiochus Epiphanes, you see what this passage is talking about being fulfilled. He is this evil oppressor of God's people. And yet, it is also in some sense something that anticipates something bigger. What we are seeing here is, is an expression of the forces of evil. 
He stands for, is a type of something even greater, that the evil that is at work in this world. And, and that's, I think, what we're supposed to do when we're looking at this. As we're looking at both this prediction and even as we understand of Antiochus, we're supposed to realize that this is signifying something more. It's showing us something about the evil that is at work in this world in the time of exile. So here's what I want us to notice. I want us to notice three things about what we are meant to see as we're looking at this this horrible figure who expresses something even more menacing. And the first thing I want us to recognize is that this passage is showing us that evil is real. I've noticed that that's a word, evil, that, that, that sometimes is kind of said almost like snarkily. Like, you know, evil kind of, we think of like, you know, the red devil with the tail. It's kind of an eye roll. Evil seems archaic. We don't talk about evil. We talk about people who are maladjusted, right? People, if you understood where they were coming from, you could be more sympathetic, and they probably need to go through some therapy. But, but evil is, is just kind of this old-fashioned way of seeing things. But when we look at Antiochus and what's being described here, we should recognize that we don't have just a well-intentioned king who sometimes goes awry. We have something much more sinister, because what do we see in Antiochus? We see someone who is directly opposing the people of God. Notice it talks about how he brings the stars down. He raises himself up against heaven. Or, or more, most explicitly, near the very end, in verse 25, it talks about how he rises up against the prince of princes. He is not just trying to do okay. He is opposing God himself, and trying to be a God replacement. And that, in short, is the essence of evil. Evil is the dark and disordered opposition to God. That's evil in its purest form. We, we might not think of evil in those ways. When we think of evil, if we think of evil at all, we tend to think of, of evil more in terms of of hating truth and bringing about lies, or of being opposed to love and bringing hatred, or, or just being cruel to people and defacing their dignity. Evil, we think the opposite of evil is, is good, and, and all of that's true, but how does that all fit together? How does that, what does that all have in common? God is the source of all of these things. Truth comes from the God who speaks. Love only exists because God first loved us. What is beautiful comes from the beauty of God. What is good comes from the goodness of God. Whenever any of these things are being demeaned, God is the one who gives each of us dignity because we bear his image. Whenever anything evil is happening, if you trace it back to its root, it is a rejection of God. All of these things in different ways are saying, I don't want you to be God. I want to be God instead. See, there is this tendency that lies in each of our hearts where we are threatened by the idea that we are not in control. That we are finite and will die. That we don't get the final say over how our lives are lived. We are threatened by the idea of our own smallness. And so... We resist that by trying to 
subconsciously or even consciously place ourselves on the throne and move God off of it. And that is what evil is. Now, oftentimes, the way that this evil works itself out is manifest in more subtle ways. We can think of different ways where we, we demonstrate our own self-absorption, our own pride, our own desire to take control. Each of these in small ways is saying, I want to be God, not you, God. But sometimes this tendency to dethrone God and put ourselves in the place appears in this world in almost naked, pure form where there is a tearing down of human dignity, where there is a tearing down of all that is good and all that is true. And we can think probably of figures like that. We can think of, well, Adolf Hitler. We might say Vladimir Putin. In, in other spheres, we can think of someone like a Harvey Weinstein. And it's certainly what we see in Antiochus Epiphanes. There is more to this, we are meant to understand, than just bad, I mean, good intentions gone bad. There's something more than any therapeutic framework can explain. There is something dark and menacing and real at, this, at work in this world. And for us to not acknowledge it means we are leaving ourselves exposed to something that is real. Evil, we are meant to see here, is real. And what's more... What we see as we look at this passage is not only is that evil is real, but that evil is strong. Wouldn't it be great if, if any person of ill intent was also incompetent, right? So anyone who was like trying to do bad things was just so foolish and so incapable that we could only laugh at them. But that's, sadly, we know not how it is, and that is not how Antiochus Epiphanes was. I mean, it explicitly tells us that he was successful. It speaks of how he's this man of intrigue with an increasing power. He is capable. And he demonstrates that capability by accomplishing exactly what he wants to for a time. He kills thousands of people who have prayed to God and placed their faith in him. He takes the temple of God, the holiest building to have existed, and walks in the middle and does something unthinkably awful. It's, it's later on known as the abomination of desecration. It's terrible, and he gets away with it. He, he throws truth to the ground and making deceit look like truth, making truth look like a lie. In the moment that you are living, if you are at the time of Antiochus, it would seem like Antiochus is winning, like evil is winning, and God is losing, because evil is strong. You know, we have, to this point in Daniel, had a number of chapters that have kind of focused on other aspects. So you have people like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar who seem great, but then they are brought down and humbled, and God is shown to be great. You have people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then Daniel threatened, but they are saved from the furnace and saved from the lions. And all of that points to the reality that God is in control, and all that is true. And yet, what is also true is sometimes the temple gets desecrated. Sometimes the lions devour the faithful, and people are burned at the stake for their faith. Sometimes thousands are brutally slaughtered by soldiers, even amidst their prayers. Sometimes nations invade others. Sometimes genocide takes place. These things also are true because 
evil is real and evil is strong. And we can understand how Daniel, as he is observing this, is is feeling almost overcome, and he's feeling sick, and he's asking, why? Why would the wicked prosper? Why would God allow someone like a Hitler, someone like a Putin, someone like you fill in the blank, someone like Aristarchus, Antiochus Epiphanes? Why? We're not actually given an answer to that here. We are just warned. Look, we need to be ready, this passage is saying. That there will be times that it will look like evil will prevail. And if we hide ourselves from it, we won't be ready. We must confront these brutal facts. But our passage does have one other thing that we really need to see. Not only do we see that evil is real and evil is strong, but we are also told that evil has an end. So as Daniel is wrestling with this vision, in the very middle of it, there is this angel that comes to help him. I don't know if you noticed, it talks about Gabriel coming to him. And, and it says Daniel is seeking to understand it. Gabriel comes and it says in verse 17, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. This is the key, he's saying. If you want to understand what's going on, you need to realize that this vision is about the time of the end the end. The end of what? Well, if we were to look at verse 25, for example, it talks about how Antiochus is broken. We know that it's the end of Antiochus, that, that after a certain period, three years to be specific, he will fail. He ends up dying of sickness, and for about a century, the, the Jews enjoy this time of independence. So there's a, the end of that, but, but it's more than that. If we, if we keep see, looking to see what, what Gabriel says to Daniel, he he further on says in verse 19, Behold, I will make known to you which shall be at the latter end of the indignation. Or it could also be translated the completion of wrath. So if we were to continue on, and, and we will next week look at chapter 9, we'll see Gabriel appear to Daniel again. And he will talk to Daniel in more detail about a time when sin will come to an end. When transgression will come to an end. When guilt will be atoned for. And what becomes apparent, and it becomes apparent even as we continue beyond that, that what we're talking about here is not just the end to the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks, not just an end to Antiochus Epiphanes, but what we're talking about is an end to evil itself. That there will be a day when whatever consequences of all of our failure will be removed. There will be a day where we will no longer have to suffer other people's hatred and cruelty. There will be a day when we will no longer be wrongdoers ourselves. There will be a day when death will be no more. There will be an end to evil. That's, that's what Gabriel is trying to tell Daniel as Daniel is being distressed. Daniel, you need to understand that this is about the end. There will be an end. That seems important, doesn't it? That there will be an end. Probably the more introspective of us recognize and think sometimes about immortality and we realize that there's going to be an end to our own lives. 
But I think our default, if we are not reflective, is to think of this world as just something that keeps going. It's like a Spotify playlist on endless repeat. There's the spring, the winter, sorry, the spring, the summer, the fall, the winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, again and again. You've got creative new things begun and old things forgotten. You've got leaders coming to power and leaders faltering. There doesn't seem to be any finish line, any goal. It just keeps going on and on, same as it ever was. And God says, no, that's not how it is. There will be an end. There is a finish line. There is a conclusion. We are drawing towards a time when evil will be no more. When as we saw in chapter 7, remember, we've cropped out the end, but we know the end. The Son of Man comes and His kingdom is established and things are made right. There will be an end. There will be an end even though it seems farther than we anticipated and it's taking longer than we expected, yet we are still ever drawing near to it. There will be an end even though, as we see here, the road to get there can be really hard at times, even though in the midst of it, evil will do its worst. In fact, what seems to be the message, if we step back and think about what we're seeing, is that it is precisely through evil doing its worst that we come to the end. It would appear that for reasons we don't fully understand, God has ordained it, that the way that he will bring evil to its conclusion is first by exposing it for its awfulness. That God has ordained that the way to bring an end to the suffering and death is by allowing his innocent ones to suffer and die. That the way to allow his truth to shine is through having darkness first swallow it. That the way to purify a relationship with him is first to allow his relationship with humanity to be horribly desecrated. It would seem that God has ordained that his beloved innocent would first experience the fullness of evil in all of its awfulness. And through that, evil would come to an end. Perhaps you realize at this point, we're no longer talking about Antiochus. We're talking about something greater. Antiochus, as we said, he was just, the end of him was just the end of one mountain. And as we get to the top of that and we recognize his downfall, we realize that there's something greater that's still, there's an end that is greater that still lies before it. There is a peak that is high, and on the top of that peak is a cross, because that is how evil is done, right? That is how the end comes. It is, it is as the perfectly innocent one is killed that death is destroyed. It is as truth incarnate is silenced that truth ends up prevailing. It is as the unthinkable happens. And God is shown to be the one that humanity hates above all else as they seek to dethrone him that the relationship with God is perfectly established. It is only as evil in its most awful form reveals itself that it is then defeated by Christ. There will be an end. 
We are in a time where evil is in its last gasps, we might say. It's like a, a mortally wounded animal that in its terror and its pain is now lashing out wherever it can. It is still raging, and we see it. We see it in wars. We see it in the persecution of the church. We see it in personal cruelty, and we must be honest. This is not a time where we can just kind of paint over everything with optimism and says it's all going to be good. It's not all good. This is a time that is hard, and there seems to be some evidence that before things end, it will even get harder. We are called to confront the brutal facts because that is the only way towards resilience. But that is not all that we see here. We see that evil, as awful as it is, has already been defeated. We see that there is absolute certainty, not just because of blind optimism, but because God has already won, that His people will prevail, that there will be a time of rejoicing when evil will be no more, and that is what we must hold on to even as we see the awfulness of the moment, because there will be an end. And in light of that, we are called to persevere to pray. And when we are moved away from faith, to just turn back and to repent and continue to hold on to the promises that we have been given. And I invite us even now to do that, to take just some moments to respond in prayer. And maybe for us, it's just a moment of asking God for help. Maybe it's acknowledging times that we've turned away from him. But, but to hold on to this reality by turning to God in prayer. And I'll lead us in prayer in a few minutes' time.